congestive heart failure and also kidney failure. So uh, she is in very, very serious condition, and our prayers to God, I'm sure, uh, will mean something to not only him, but also to her and the family. Grace is someone we've known for quite a few years and love dearly, and uh, I'm just so sad that she's suffering the difficulties she is. So please keep Grace very, very much in your prayers as she goes through this uh, very, very difficult situation. Last week, we played a tape that was made in 2005. Uh, As I was going through the book of Jeremiah, I came to, I think it was chapter 8, and we went on through chapter 11. And uh, because of some difficulties we've been facing here in Anatoth, what we've named this place, uh, I decided to play that again because uh, it talks, I think, specifically about this place and is prophetic regarding this place. So I did make comments about what would happen here in 2005 when I went through that. had no idea what form they would take or what, what it would all entail. But nevertheless, because the Scripture said it, I notated it and made comments about it. Today I want to start by considering Jeremiah 32 with the question in mind, why did we name this Anatoth in the first place? Now we've been over this information, I think, a few times over the last 20 years. All of you weren't here 20 years ago. In fact, very few of you were here until 2000, and most of you weren't here until after that. But uh, Anatoth was considered as early as 1996. And I'll explain why and why we named it that. Was it just random? We could have called this Nazareth or Gilead or Jericho or any number of names. If we wanted a biblical name, we could have picked out of the Bible, uh, of which there are hundreds. So why this one? And does it have any significant significance? Is it just a random thing that was done? Let's go back in the history of this organization a little bit, a congregation of God, a free church, and understand a little bit before we get specifically into Jeremiah 32. I had a dream as I was waking up in 1994 when I was in Beaver Dam, Arizona, developing a subdivision there, and it was quite frightening. It was... (laughs) Uh, sudden, uh, it, it left me discombobulated, I guess I'd have to say, uh, because it was as if God was telling me that I was to prepare a place for His people, and that it would be near here, here being Beaver Dam, Arizona, just between Mesquite, Nevada, and St. George, Utah, just, just a few miles really south of Utah. <laughs> And I was questioning, why me? Why would you want me to do this? I'm nobody. Uh, what do you mean prepare a place for your people? And it was repeated. Prepare a place for my people near here. 
And that was the end of it. And I laid there for quite some time, mesmerized, uh, wondering what that meant and what to do about it, because it was just out of the blue, uh, and I had nothing to tie it to. But I immediately began to cast about and think, what does this mean? What needs to be done? We were selling mobile manufactured homes at that time uh, there and in Las Vegas and in Pahrump, Nevada, where we had another subdivision. And uh, a fellow had contacted me. I think it was from, might have been from Las Vegas anyway. And he had a bunch of land north of Kingman up near the Grand Canyon. And he had developed a subdivision there and was wanting to put homes in there. So he wanted us to trade him homes for land and develop that subdivision. So I thought, well, maybe that's what God's talking about. So I jumped in the vehicle and headed around and down and to Kingman and then back up north almost to the canyon where the subdivision was, uh, wondering, well, what can be done? Now, we were not in a position monetarily to buy 50 or 60 or 80 new manufactured homes and put them on land and trade for the land. We, we just couldn't do that. I mean, that would have been millions of dollars to do what he wanted done. But I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's it because it's the only thing I could think of. And that call had come in just, I don't know, a day or two or three or four before. And I thought, well, if it takes money and manufactured homes, maybe God will work out a way. I'll go look at it. So I drove clear around there to look at that land. And I got there and looked around and said, well, I don't know what we could do. <laughs> and I think I prayed about it pretty diligently. If this is where you want us, God, and this is what you had in mind, uh, then open the door for us. I say us. I was there by myself. And I didn't know who us was. <laughs> so uh, it was just a, a message that came privately in that dream. So I kept that in mind, though later I got out of that uh, business down there and went back to Alaska later that same year. That was in 94, uh, and was back in Alaska through the winter of 94, 95, uh, not knowing what that meant, and I wasn't in... I wasn't near Beaver Dam anymore being back home in Alaska. So it kind of got put on the back burner as I, I didn't figure out what it was that God wanted. Well, meantime, John Reitenbaugh from Church of the Great God and John Reed came up in the summer of 95 uh, on vacation. Now, they didn't bring their wives or anything, and I, uh, I wondered why are they coming up here to visit us because uh, they'd never done any such thing. But they stayed a while with us, and we had a very fine time and showed them around Alaska a bit. Uh, and I didn't realize at the time that was very likely a job interview, because when we got to the Feast of Tabernacles in San Antonio in the fall of 95, uh, there was a board of directors meeting, and John had included me at that by that time as, as a board of directors, so I went, and, and he almost immediately began to say he needed somebody in Charlotte because the workload there was too big for them and needed someone to quali qualified to help uh, with the ministry there. And uh, I felt like a heel 
living up in Alaska, enjoying hunting and fishing and the beauty of God's creation. And uh, I was sitting there kind of feeling guilty, so I, I finally raised my hand and said, uh, maybe I could go if you, if you want me. So we, Marla and I went with him to lunch that same day, I think, and talked it over and, and uh, were hired. So we went back home after the feast, and I began to make preparations to make an initial load from Alaska to North Carolina, which was quite a move for us. So I took a pickup loading the trailer down there uh, in December and arrived in time. I kind of set it as a goal to go to work on the 1st of January in 1996 and did show up at the office report for duty on that day. So I had another dream there about the books of Haggai and Zechariah about two weeks later which was also quite vivid and very real. So immediately I began a deep study into Haggai and the first six chapters of Zechariah, trying to figure out what was the meaning of those exactly. Now, I'll go back for a moment. I've expressed this before, but uh, I had gone to Herbert Armstrong in 1981 with a personal situation to discuss, and... Knowing him, whatever was on his mind was generally what discussed in a meeting, no matter what you brought there. So he immediately began to talk about his successor. This was in 1981. And my wife and I and, and Joda Koch were the only other people in the room at the time. Now, he told me he was the rubber bell. And then he began to say that he was getting older and he might die. Who would succeed him? And he said Rod Meredith couldn't do it, and Al Portune couldn't do it, and Ted Armstrong couldn't do it. Ted, I don't think, was even in the church at that time, so I don't know whether he mentioned Ted specifically. But he named several evangelists, in other words, and said they can't succeed me. They don't qualified for whatever reasons. And uh, I said, Mr. Armstrong... It says there in Second Thessalonians that a man of sin will stand within the church proclaiming he is in the place of God and will defile the temple. And he kind of looked up startled and he said, maybe that's Stan Rader. Now Stan Rader, the ministry had been saying, was not what he ought to be for quite some time because we had seen some of his shenanigans. But Mr. Armstrong had defended him publicly up to that point but he knew by then what Stan Rader was so that was the first thought that came to mind it occurred to me later that Stan Rader wasn't in the room Joe DeCotch was in the room and Joe DeCotch is the one who stood up in place of Mr. Armstrong and proclaimed that his doctrines were greater than God's doctrines and he certainly defiled the temple of God, the church. Now, as you and I know now, I began to understand in January of 96 that all the prophecies of the Bible, nearly all of them at least, apply first to the church, then to the nation of Israel. Spiritual Israel, God addresses in the prophecies first, and then he addresses physical Israel. So the prophecies will happen first to the church, than to physical Israel. 
And since 1996, I think we've seen a lot of that borne out, some of it before 96 and certainly a lot afterward. But I went home in 1981, and my focus at that moment was somewhat on Haggai and Zechariah because Mr. Armstrong had said that he was the rebel bell. So I thought, well, how does that fit? What does that mean? So I still have it on a cassette, a sermon I gave in 1981 about Haggai and Zechariah, and the only reason I had studied it and gave the sermon was because of what Mr. Armstrong had said, and then about Joseph Dukach. So I wasn't completely ignorant of Haggai and Zechariah, but I didn't know how it applied. See, Mr. Armstrong had thought that the maybe the apostolic church when it began, was the former temple, and he was the latter. But then I saw that in both Ezra and Haggai that there would be old men around who saw both the former temple and the latter temple. So I began to realize that Herbert Armstrong was the former temple. He was a temple of God. Uh, the church, the worldwide church of God was, as I understand now, Sardis. Not Philadelphia, but Sardis. Uh, very clear in the scriptures and in history when you study it out, and I gave some sermons on it, so we won't go there right now. But in any case, uh, what God began to reveal there was that with the breakup of Worldwide and the spewing out of his mouth of what it was, which became Laodicea, out of the few remaining names of Sardis and all of us who went into Laodiceanism, out of that would come the Philadelphia era. The faithful remnant would become the faithful era under the work of the two witnesses. So, the, the understanding of the temple being built uh, began to come, a spiritual temple as I thought, uh, the church being rebuilt, and Haggai said that it would be of greater spiritual power and glory than that which had come before. That which had come before, God ultimately spewed out of his mouth because we were lukewarm, Laodicea, and we've been over this a hundred, maybe a thousand times by now. Uh, but he would, out of that, draw a 10% remnant, put with them the ones who would become the two witnesses, and they then would preach the gospel around the world as a witness for three and a half years before being killed in the streets of the true Jerusalem. Now, they are to rebuild the temple and ultimately Jerusalem before the three and a half years starts. So that has to happen, I think, fairly soon because the tribulation uh, is gathering around us. So there's not too many years left to get that done. I finally realized that not only was the spiritual temple to be built, but there is a physical temple to be built as well. Haggai, I think, makes that clear when he says that people will say it's not time to build a temple. Well, no one says it's not time to build a spiritual temple. All hands agree on that. But when I bring up building a physical temple, you'll be amazed at how fast people say it's not time to do that, or that the Jews are going to do that in Jerusalem. It's not the church's job. But who would God commission to build his temple? The Jews that Christ divorced and disfellowshipped back when he was still here on this earth, told the Pharisees that they, he would have nothing more to do with them until they accepted the apostles and those who would succeed them. And they haven't done that yet. 
So he's not working through the Jews anymore. Doesn't have anything to do with them. But he's working through his church. Now, what does this have to do with Anatoth? I came to understand that the promised land was here. Mostly southern Utah and part of northern Arizona. Uh, and that began to happen in April, Passover of 1996. Four months after I'd reported to work at Church of the Great God and had had the first dream about Haggai and Zechariah and what that meant. So we'd studied very, very diligently uh, up to that point those scriptures and I'd given a sermon or two or three by then. I spoke on the first week of every month on, the ne- on their network. So the first one was about Haggai. I think that was in the first week of February '96. But then John sent me to Chicago to conduct the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread there uh, in April of 96. Now, ironically, of course, we didn't understand then that uh, the first holy day is the day following the Passover service. Uh, so I was, we thought the, day of un, the first day of Unleavened Bread was uh, a, a day later. So I was preparing my sermon for the first day of unleavened bread, or at least what I thought was the first day of unleavened bread, on what actually turns out to be Passover day, the the day period following the Passover the night before. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was there in the the hotel, uh, began to get drowsy, so I took a nap. And as I was waking up, I don't think you could call it a dream, it was more of a vision, But there appeared two maps, side by side. One was of the Middle East and of the Israel over there, and one was of Utah and continuing south. The main perception was that they were mirror images of one another, but that the one in the Middle East was a fake, and the one in Utah was the true... uh, Israel, the true promised land, the true place, if you will. Because it showed the features of one and then the other, and I've gone through this before, so I won't take a lot of time with this today. Jerusalem was absent on both maps, but Zion and Petra were there, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were there, as were Las Vegas and Los Angeles, and the... uh, there was similarity all the way through between the two maps. Now, that startled me deeply. That showed, and I saw the comparison of the perception that Utah is true and that one's fake over there. So, boy, did we begin to study Utah and found out about the secret places of the stairs, the staircase here geologically, and many, many other things, uh, and realize that this area fits the Bible and the scriptures in the Bible far, far better than anything over there. In fact, what's over there doesn't fit it at all. The description of the promised land fits here. It doesn't fit there at all. So we began to realize that uh, this was the important area that God was looking to, and the reason that I had had the dream about prepare a place near here was that this was the true place. I didn't know what he meant by near here at that time. Uh, 
And I had come out here looking for a place, I think in early 96, and then again later, oh, oh yeah, because I went, uh, went back to Alaska to, to move down here in the summer of 96 to move Marla and everything down. And uh, on one trip up there and back, we stopped by Zion to look at it. Uh, not we, it was a, another fellow that was with me from Charlotte. Uh, to look at Zion and to see how everything fit. And then we went back to Charlotte and reported, well, John Reitenbaugh came out here. In fact, he was in Zion National Park December 25th of 96 and said this may be the place, but it's not yet the time. Except he said maybe. Uh, now I know it was, and no doubt, the place. So... Uh, I began looking for a place with his, his approval. At the time, I was traveling out to different church areas for CGG once a month. And every time I got anywhere in the West, Phoenix or San Francisco or, you know, or anywhere where I could drive out here, I would take some time and come this way and look for a place. So I looked all over the Four Corners area. I didn't know what near here meant. I thought maybe that means within a day's drive. Maybe it means <laughs> 10 miles from Beaver Dam. I didn't know what it meant. So I searched kind of far and wide in the Four Corners area and uh, hadn't found anything. But I knew it had to be a piece of land, a field. We'd also learned that it needed to be in a wilderness and mountain and desert area because that's where God said he would bring his people together, was in the desert and the wilderness. He'd plant seven trees in the wilderness and the desert, Isaiah 41, and other places. So, and I knew it had to be, by then, somewhere near Zion. Beaver Dam was not the point. Zion was the point. Okay. We're looking for land. Call it a field. Call it what you want. Uh, a place to prepare. And it had not escaped my attention that Jeremiah had been told at one point in his life, and he was a resident of the little town of Anatoth, he had been told in Isaiah or Jeremiah 32 to go out and buy a field. Well, that re resonated with me because God had told me to do the same thing. A place... A physical place means land or field or, or a place to be. It couldn't be anything else. Now, people say, well, does that fit prophecy? Does, was that a prophetic thing, that it be named Anatoth and where you find a field and so on? So I want to examine that now and uh, see what God says, and see if it's prophetic. Now, that's the key. If I just pick that name, Harem Scarum, out of the air, uh, and it's just the name of a place, like any other name city, Sioux City or Glendale, you know, just pick a name, then that wouldn't be important one way or another. But can we show that this is named Anatoth on purpose, not that I was trying to fulfill prophecy. I was just trying to follow what God said here 
uh, to Jeremiah because he'd said the same thing to me. So naturally, I would go to the places where God talked about such a thing and see what it said. So let's go to Jeremiah 32 now. And the context here is that God had been talking to Israel, and Israel was, of course, sinning against God at the time in great degree. And Jeremiah had told the king, Zedekiah, that Israel was going to go into captivity, or Judah particularly. And uh, the king had shut him up in prison. Uh, he didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. <laughs> That's often what happened to the prophets. Uh, they were jailed or killed or stoned or, or something because whoever was in charge or whoever was listening uh, didn't like what they said, be it leader or be it people. Anyway, verse 6 uh, Jeremiah says, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Prophets, Behold, Hanamiel, which means the grace of God in the Hebrew, Hanamiel, grace of God, the son of Shalom, which means recompense, your uncle shall come to you, saying, Buy you my field that is in Anatoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Uh, I looked the word Anatoth up, and it means answered prayer which, when we found this place, uh, the condition seemed that it was an answer to prayer, and it fit what had happened with Jeremiah. Uh, now, where was Anatoth originally? That's a question, too, uh, because the Bible dictionaries and various ones who address Anatoth say it was six miles from Jerusalem. Well, their information in the know the original places of the Bible, because the original places of the Bible weren't in the Middle East. It's just like saying in, in the Psalms that, that the snow or the, the mist from, the Mount, from Mount Hermon would fall on Zion. Well, in the Middle East, the place that's named Hermon, that they call Mount Hermon over there, is about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. In that desert country, any dew or fog or mist is not going to fall off of Mount Hermon 80 miles further away at what they call Zion, which is a little curb-sized hill. Height hill. It's not even a hill. It just goes off into a cemetery. So, I know they got Hermon all messed up. It's not near enough to go over that Zion. And they messed a lot of things up the same way. In fact... Uh, uh, what Constantine's mama went down there, Helen, and in two weeks named the places in the Middle East, a lot of them, and put Bible names on them that had never been there before. That was in the 300s A.D., long after Christ. So, do, do the commentators and Bible dictionary writers know how far Anatoth was from the real Jerusalem? Likely not. I don't think the Bible says. Now, uh, it does say that, uh, let's see, Bethesda and one other little town, it wasn't Bethel, uh, it'll come to me, uh, was 660 furlongs, I think, from the city of Jerusalem, and it was on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, that works out at about one and three quarters miles if you multiply out the furlongs. Well, if you go to the so-called Jerusalem in the Middle East, 
what they call the Mount of Olives is just across a small draw. Go outside the city wall, cross the street, cross a small bridge across the draw, and you start right up what they call the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's, it's not 200 yards away. And the top of it probably is not more than three or 400 yards away. It's not a very big hill, really. I walked up it, I know. Uh, but the one over here, where we now believe Jerusalem is, and where I believe the Mount of Olives is, due east of it, as the Bible says it's east, is about one and three quarters miles from where I think the city wall probably was. So it fits the Bible. But over there, it doesn't. So does there a description of Anatoth fit? I don't know. Could have been right here where we're sitting. I don't know that. And maybe it's just a type. And maybe it isn't the exact location. I don't think it matters when we get into it a little more, and you'll see. So he told him to go by this field. Verse 8, So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Eternal, visited him in prison, and said to me, Buy my field, I pray you, that is in Anatoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Eternal. Well, that'd be easy to see where it was. It was in Benjamin, and if you take the Jerusalem I now comprehend as being Jerusalem, and take the statistics from the book of Ezekiel, the temple there, uh, you'll find that the promised land went from about Provo, uh, which is near the northern sea, down to the waters of Strife, which would be the Colorado River, uh, with the rough water down there, and almost to the Nevada border in Utah and just east of Bryce Canyon, and this would be included in it where we're sitting today. Uh, that's the original promised land as described. And it fits geographically what the Bible says. So it says in the land of Benjamin, so all you have to do is go and see where Benjamin was on the scale of Ezekiel, and Anatoth was in Benjamin. I don't think it was down this far south. No, I don't think so. I'd have to check that, double-check it for sure. So this may not be the original place, but is the story the same? That's what we need to understand. Okay? So he bought the field, and he subscribed the evidence, and they weighed the money out in verse 10. And he took that evidence and sealed it according to the law and custom, recorded it with the county, if you will. And I gave the evidence of the purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, who was one who did this, the scribing, who wrote the records. Uh, and... It was all written down and recorded. Verse 13, And I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel. So now here's another word straight from God to Baruch. Take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is opened, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. So, this buying of the field was directed by God and clearly recorded and sealed, and it was to be that way for a long, long time. Uh, it was to be evidence for something. It was to be, a story was to be told by it, if you will. God didn't have it put in a vessel and stored and sealed without having something there that would mean something a long time later, okay? 
Now, we've assumed that he buried it in the ground. I don't know that. It was put in an earthen vessel. And back in those days, they stored documents in clay pots, earthen vessels. They would take the flame and draw the air out of it and then the top so that they would remain fresh and good and not uh, age and be destroyed. So that's the way they sealed things in earthen vessels. Now, was it buried? It doesn't say that. I don't know. I don't know where it is today. We speculated we might dig it up someday. Who knows? But anyway, it was for a long time that it was to be there. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, this was on the cusp of them going into the Babylonian captivity and staying there for 70 years. So this prophecy has to be for at least 70 years. I'll show you in a little bit that it's going to be a lot longer than that. But it had to be at least 70 years just from the first evidence shown here. So that when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, uh, men would again buy fields and plant vineyards and so on and live their lives like they had. Now that occurred with Ezra and Nehemiah at the end of that, cap- at that captivity. They came back, they built the temple, they built the wall of Jerusalem, and people did buy land again in that area and did settle there. Now is that the end of the prophecy? No. Let's notice Jeremiah's prayer here. This is a very significant prayer. He says in verse 17, uh, well, now, wait a minute, verse 16, Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase to Baruch, I prayed to the Eternal, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. He had faith God could do anything. You showed loving kindness to thousands. That's what, the ten, that's what the Ten Commandments say. He would show mercy to thousands. Isn't that curious? Israel at times had millions of people, and we today as Israelites have hundreds of millions of people on the earth, all the tribes put together, and even hundreds of millions here in Ephraim. So why did God say, I'll give mercy to thousands? Even in the Ten Commandments because there's only 144,000 in the first resurrection. And he's showing mercy to that 144,000. The rest of the dead live not till a thousand years is over. So the mercy of God is to the commandment keepers and only in the thousands. And there were millions of Israelites when that law was given to Moses. Perhaps three and a half million, 600,000 men men only, plus women and children coming out of of, uh, Mitzrayim. Curious. Not only that, but this end time gathering will probably be in about the seven to twelve thousand person range, because he says it's a remnant or ten percent of what was the former temple, which was Worldwide Church of God. So only ten percent will remain faithful and be part of Philadelphia out of that. Anyway, great in counsel, verse nineteen, and mighty in work, for your eyes are upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. He was about to do that with the Babylonian captivity, and he's done it since. And then he recounts the wonders in Egypt and how they had been brought out by signs and wonders, verse 21, and with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror. He's going to do the same thing again. 
He didn't back then. They stayed in captivity for 70 years, and then they trickled back over here, uh, out of Babylon. You've given them this land, which you swore to them. Joshua took them in there. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not your voice, neither walked in your law. There's the history of Israel in one sentence. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this evil to come upon them. So Jeremiah had prophesied these things to, is, to Judah. And now he's, he's recounting what God told him, and God gave him in his message to them. Behold, the mounts, they are come into the city. So the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were coming, and that there would be sword, famine, and pestilence that you have spoken is come to pass, and behold, you see it. And you told me, he said. So he's bringing this down personal again. He's recounting history and what God had done, and then he brings it back to what he had just done. You said to me, O Lord God, buy you the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Then came the word of the eternal Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the eternal God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And then he goes on to show that he would give that land into the hands of the Chaldeans, and so on, and how it <coughs> had provoked him. In verse 33, they turned their back and not their face to it. <laughs> he taught them early through Moses and Joshua and others. But they didn't listen. They set their abominations in the house and the high places of Baal, verse 33. They passed their children to Molech. Today we're doing it through abortion instead of through a literal physical fire. So God says it will be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon in verse 36. And then he's talking here about, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath. Now, here he says, I'll gather them out of all the countries where I've sent them. Now, this, Babylon, this immediate captivity that they were about to go into was to Babylon. It wasn't to all countries. Is it possible he's talking here beyond that physical captivity into Babylon at that time. Because we know that there is a great conspiracy of nations, a coalition against America coming very soon, that is going to take us into captivity as a, as a physical nation around the world, to all countries, all over the place. So is this beginning now, at this point, to refer to an end-time fulfillment? Jeremiah is an end-time book, don't forget, as are all the other prophecies. So he's going to take them to all countries where I have driven them in my anger and my fury. Is he talking about the nations of Israel today and what's going to happen to our nation? We're right on the edge of it as we sit here today. Right on the edge. The world economy is collapsing as we speak around the world. Zephaniah says there will be a great crash, specifically in Israel. And we will bear the brunt of it. And then he says a military uh, force will come right behind it, the northern army, the Assyrian, and her allies, and destroy this nation, and the other nations of Israel as well, Western Europe and wherever Israel has settled. 
So, is this transitioning to that? Let's go on. He says, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again to this place, Jerusalem and Anathoth, where Jeremiah lived and was in jail at the time. And I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. Now, when they came back from Babylon, in that 70-year captivity, did God bless them in a way, and did they continue to obey in a way that would be forever? Not a chance. Not a chance. What condition did Christ find them in when he got there? Pharisees, Sadducees, snakes, serpents, devils? Were they following God? No. This has to be a prophecy that went way beyond that 70 years. It has to be an end-time prophecy. Because he's going to gather Israel again one more time when Christ returns in the millennium from all these countries where we've been taken physically captive. Prior to that, however, in the context of the two witnesses and the remnant of the church, he is going to bring them back ahead of time to the original promised land and begin to bless them there and give them a microcosm of the Garden of Eden to be a light to the world. And we will be with him forevermore because we will transition from the end-time faithful, if we remain faithful, into the kingdom of God and dwell with Christ and the Father forevermore. So when you start talking forever, it has to be a very end-time prophecy. So this prophecy of Anatoth and of the destruction of Jerusalem is talking about now. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Well, he had turned away from them after the Babylonian captivity when they disobeyed again. And he turned away from them while he walked this earth and said, I'll have nothing more to do with you. So this is beyond that. And has he ever regathered them since he was on this earth? No. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. That'll be new for Israel, right there. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus says the Eternal, Like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon all the good that I have promised them. And fields shall be bought in this land, whereof you say it is desolate without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money and subscribe evidence, just as he had. Well, now, when they came back out of Babylon, the Jews, with Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they rebuilt. But it wasn't desolate. It was not desolate at that time. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had left people behind. 
he had put uh, Gamaliel in charge. Not Gamaliel. Where did I get that? Uh, what's his name? Starts with a G. Gedaliah. <laughs> uh, he had left Nebuchadnezzar had left him in charge, and then the Jews killed him. We keep that fast still, as Zechariah tells us to do. So that wasn't forever, and they did again sin. They didn't turn to God and stay there, so it was not an everlasting covenant. So here he's taken this prophecy, turned it into an eternal one and an end-time one, and then he brings Anatoth back into it in verse 43. So he ties the end-time part of this prophecy back to an Anatoth. <coughs> the same thing would be done. Fields shall be bought. Wherefore you say it is desolate. Now, the place that the original Jerusalem was is today desolate. Jeremiah 9, uh, Isaiah 61, 64, uh, places in Ezekiel, or many places we've examined that show that, gen that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations and no one dwell there. That was not true when Ezra and Nehemiah came back out of Babylon after 70 years. The people Neb had left there were still there. So it was not desolate. Now, to this day, it is. I think it is significant that in the dream of the two maps that God gave me, Jerusalem was left out. Now, is there anything more significant than Jerusalem in those two maps? No, but they weren't there. He already had someone who lived in Cane Beds, Arizona, of all places, that he was showing where Jerusalem was, via petroglyphs, via history, via geology and geography, and various other things. I didn't need to know that. You know what would have happened had I known that? I'd have said, well, that's fairly near. It's north of Zion, which the Bible says Jerusalem is north of Zion. And I would have been up there looking for a place to be. That's where I'd have gone. Because I'd have thought, well, Jerusalem's the most significant thing here. That's where we need to be. God didn't open my mind to that until we'd already bought this and lived here several years. Then he showed me through someone else who had a dream. says, go find the commandment keepers in, Anata or in uh, cane beds and give them a story. Well, here he came said, I'll show you where Jerusalem is. Turned around and did just that. Showed me the Parowan Gap with the story of Israel all over it. Showed me a figure pointing to it that was carved in stone about six feet high a few miles from it. And on and on and on it went. The geography perfectly fits it with a sea before and behind. Former and a hinder sea. And on and on it goes. We won't go there anymore for sake of time. Now, <clears throat> This is an end-time prophecy that God would bring His people back. When we finally found a piece of property, I enlisted others to help me once we moved to Kanab in 2001. People began to move out here shortly after the feast in 01. I did. I bought my first load when I came to the feast. And people saw that and said, What are you doing? I said, I'm moving to Kanab. I'm going to look for a place. And others started moving within weeks. So here we sat. We were still looking for land. Well, during the feast in '02, someone said, here's an ad. Uh, so right soon after the feast, I went and looked at it, and I said, I think this will work. 
People said, that Daryl won't approve this. This is just a bunch of sagebrush and rabbit brush out here. He, he, won't, he won't say this is it. But when I walked out, I looked around a little bit, and I said, I think this will work. So I went to see the guy, asked everybody to pray about it, and see if maybe God's hand, because John Reitenbaugh had told me years before, well, when you find a place, if it's from God, it'll either be given to us or almost given to us. And up to that point, everything we'd looked at, we couldn't afford. Uh, couldn't afford a down payment. Uh, land was expensive around here near a national park, and especially on the Utah side. And then you had to pay as much for water as you did land. But here was a place in Arizona where with a $10 permit at the time, you could drill a well and have all the water you wanted. And that's one of the first questions I asked him, is there water under there? And he said, oh yeah, there's plenty of water. And then he gave me, I was going to negotiate certain terms. If he doesn't give it to me for this, I'm not buying. So then he started offering me lower interest, lower payments on, lower uh, price per acre, and then a 5000 down payment on a $300,000 piece of land. That isn't even earnest money on this kind of a purchase. I just whipped my checkbook out and wrote him a check. I bought it right on the spot because it was almost given to me. Just like it was all... Uh, Jeremiah had to pay for it, just like I and we had to pay for it. But it was made possible. Well, did God make that possible for Jeremiah? He was in jail. How could he go look for land? No, he says, they're going to come to you, and they're going to offer it to you, you buy it. And that's exactly what happened. It was offered to me on terms I didn't even intend to try to negotiate. They were so much lower. So we see that this is an end-time prophecy. And since I had been instructed to buy a field, and Jeremiah had, uh, and I saw Anatoth men answer to prayer, I said, let's call it Anatoth. <laughs> now there's another prophecy about Anatoth back here that I was not focusing on. I'd read it, sure, and I knew that there was there would be some trouble, but I wasn't thinking of that at the time. <coughs> and that's back in Jeremiah 11, and I want to go there briefly. We had a sermon on Jeremiah 8 through 11 given in 2005 last week about uh, that it concluded speaking of Anatoth. And I want to review that part of it today because what I said in 2005 about there being a rebellion in Anatoth or a conspiracy in Anatoth, as I said then, I didn't know what it would be, what form it would take, or anything else. But I believed then that this was an Anatoth that God was dealing with and that he had given us this place and he's the one that inspired the name through Jeremiah. I believed that. And I may have even understood the end time part of it because I'd gone over it many times at that time. So I knew that it had to be for today. Therefore I said, when I went through Jeremiah 11 in 2005, there will be a rebellion at Anatoth. Now, the context here, I'm not going to go back through chapters 8 through 11. We, I did that last week in that 05 sermon. But remember the context here is speaking of Israel, the, the nation of Israel primarily. It's also speaking of the church, as we know that all prophecies essentially are 
dual. They speak first of a fulfillment in the church and then a fulfillment in the nations of Israel. We've seen the church scattered, put to the spiritual sword, famine, and pestilence, and we're about to see the physical nation put to the sword, famine, and pestilence in the Great Tribulation. Well, before it, actually, when the, when the beast destroys the whore, Ephraim, Israel, the United States. But this is talking about the disobedience of our nation today and where we are today, just about to be destroyed. But notice that God causes Jeremiah to bring this down to the personal level, not just speaking of all Israel here. Notice that in Jeremiah 11 about... Uh, well, let's start in verse 14. He's been talking about our nation and the church as a whole. And he says, Therefore pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. When it began to, when the church of God began to come apart in the early 90s, everybody prayed to God and asked Him to deliver us, to help us, uh, not to let the church come apart. Didn't do any good to pray, did it? It came apart anyway. And with this nation today, as it's beginning to come apart, and we're facing civil war very soon, revelation, revolution, martial law, etc. Don't do any good to pray for it either. It's too late. God's judgment is coming. So, those two things being said, let's go to verse 15 and see how this is drawn down to a specific prophecy about Jeremiah and Anatoth. What is my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness? Now, could this be speaking of the end-time church and the bride of Christ, his beloved? That's what he calls her, his beloved. Seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you. So he said, that which he had chosen to be holy was becoming unholy that different goals and purposes might be being pursued than what God had intended. We're to look to God for our deliverance. We're to look to Him for our sustenance. We're to look to Him for everything. But now I find we have people that are beginning to think about looking to the governments of this world and the courts of this world, which God expressly forbids that any of us do in 1 Corinthians. He says it's better to be defrauded than to go to the courts of the land against each other. Now, you might say, well, you're not because you're a sinner, so I can sue you. No. God, Paul was addressing people that weren't getting along with each other. So it's not your judgment or mine, in that sense, who a brother is and is not. If they were members of the church of God, or are, uh, we are told by God des- definitely not to take it to court. And you are in direct opposition to Scripture and to God if you dare do such a thing, whoever you might be. But here, the holy flesh has begun to depart as we begin to look to other gods. Do you realize a 501c3 corporation is idolatry? A free church looks to God only. The Bible is its charter, its bylaws, and its constitution. A 501c3 church corporation is under the 
supervision, and the control of the U.S. government or the state in which it's incorporated. That's why the state of California was able to come in and take over Worldwide Church of God. They were incorporated. <clears throat> they answer to the corporation. That's how they're shutting churches down in this nation right now. If they teach against abortion, homosexuality, or other ungodly things. They have the right to come in and shut that church down, and they have in several cases, and will more, believe me. They have the legal right to do it because they are a 501c3. So, people who incorporate are turning their sovereignty over to the state. The state becomes their god, if you will, as opposed to the true god, because they answer to the state instead of God about what they can preach, what they can teach, what they can do. They're putting another government, another God, ahead of the true God. When you incorporate as a 501c3, you are committing idolatry. Why wouldn't he be upset? Verse 16, The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. So what was raised up in Anatoth, as we'll get to here in a moment, God was essentially pleased with. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. Look at us today. He became upset with some things. For the Eternal of hosts that planted you has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. State government, if you will. And the Eternal has given me knowledge of it. So he's speaking to Jeremiah, who was the leader. He's not speaking of the leader here having disobeyed. He's speaking of the people who were not following Jeremiah and who were putting Jeremiah in jail and talking down about him. Then you showed me their doings. I don't have time to go into how God showed me what was going on here, but he did. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Some of these people who departed from us have got together a paper and signed it with subterfuge, saying it was just a paper to show uh, <coughs> the county how many people lived here. And they got a majority of the people living here to sign it. The county knew how many people were living here. That's bogus. It's ridiculous. How many, the county had sent people down here I don't know how many times and driven around this place, and they knew what was here. So don't tell me you, you had to have people sign this paper, which had contained lies, and it was pointed toward owning this place, taking it over in a hostile takeover, putting the church aside, reincorporating, since they have, they say, a majority, and a majority of people has never ruled anything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You will not find one place in the Bible where people were asked to vote on something Anywhere, whether Moses or David or the apostles. Even the apostles didn't vote among themselves on an issue other than uh, Urim and Thummim about who the next apostle would be, and that was before the church started. But when they had the conference there, the apostles were there, Paul was there, Peter recused himself because he was involved with the altercation with Paul, 
So he turned it over to James, and James didn't take a vote of the apostles even. He said, my sentence is. God's church is a hierarchy. It always has been. When was the first we the people set up? Declaration of Independence of the United States? Not on your life. We the people started when Satan and the demons said, we the people are going to take over the throne of God. It continued in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We the people know better than God who told us not to eat that. Korah took on we the people briefly. Miriam and Aaron tried it, and they got over it real fast. Ananias and Sapphira tried it. They got drug out. We the people never ruled anything in God's kingdom and never, ever will. That is ungodly from Satan the devil forward. So don't be taken in by that lie. Now, some of this stuff had been done right here without me knowing about it. I Finally, somebody turned in a corporation paper, uh, put it in my box. I didn't know anything about it. But what did they do? Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. There's somebody sitting right here in the room today that had one of them come to him a couple days ago and say, Daryl and Nelson should not be in the ministry. They're not qualified. And on and on and on it went. Had to be thrown out finally. Now, are they trying to get rid of us or not? They want to take over because they want to own the land. It's all about the land is what it is. The land is named, the church has had its name on the property, and therefore they have to declare them the church and us not the church in order to take over the land. I never promised anybody would own this land, and I never promised to divide it up as soon as the uh, mortgage is paid off. Why didn't we just make a 19-year lease? If that was the case, why do we make it 49 years? It goes way beyond. I don't, I'm running out of time here. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges rightly, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for unto you have I revealed my cause. I've talked to God a lot about this, brethren. God caused me to buy this place of land. He told me in 1994 before you had ever even heard of me. Unless you read a graduation story in the 1996 Envoy or something. And I began a quest to find the place. And God showed it to me and I bought it. And I was not going to sell it. It was never the intention to sell it. Don't intend to now. And I will stand against anybody who tries to sell any part of it. Because God gave it to me and to us. For His purposes. It's not my land, it's not your land. It's God's land. He has a purpose to begin drawing His remnant here. And it'll be too small for them all. It says in Isaiah 54, it's too straight for us, too small. Well, He said very clearly He's going to put us in villages. He'll move people out of here. After they start coming in, we're going to start building Jerusalem back. Start building the temple back. Now, people say, well, Daryl's not qualified as a minister because he had a divorce. Well, that's been, what, 35, 40 years ago? <laughs> been a while. You know, he gave me all this incredible information years and years after that. 
So he must have either passed on it or forgiven it or whatever. Because if I were living in sin, I don't think God would have showed me the things that I've showed you. Now, if I'm that Joshua of Zechariah 3, as many think, and I've not claimed the office, I see similarities there. But it says he was filthy. I can't say I've been clean all my life. won't go into all that. We don't have confessional booths that aren't here in the Bible either. But God forgave whatever had been up to that point and gave me this information. And then he said, diligently obey. Well, I haven't kept his word completely since then. I've made mistakes. I've sinned. I don't think there's a day gone by that I haven't thought something selfish, greedy, lustful, uh, you know, vanity, ego, pride, something. Or sinned with my tongue. I'm not a perfect man. But you know what? I'm going to share something with you. I've had a heart rhythm problem, I guess... 30, 35 years. My dad had it for 55. But I learned over the years from different sources that if I'd hold my breath as long as I could, like I was drowning, it would regulate. Or if I'd clamp down real hard, it would regulate. So I do that a time or two or three, and it's always regulated up to this point. But about a week ago, whatever night it was, around 12, 1 o'clock, I got a heart rhythm that was different than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. This other thing had always been exactly the same, and it was controlled by the methods I mentioned. This was a totally different, completely separate type of a situation with the heart. And I tried those things that that I use normally when I get that arrhythmia. Didn't work. I laid there for awake for six hours, trying to get my heart to regulate, and it wouldn't do it. It was something that was completely different than anything I had ever experienced, and it was not very comfortable. I think at this point it might have even at some point become life-threatening, because if I couldn't stop it and couldn't control it, and I wasn't about to go to the doctors, uh, it would have, might have continued, might have killed me a week ago. Now, if whatever I've done around here, whatever sins I've committed, whatever... Uh, people accuse me of, whether it's true or untrue, makes no difference, I think, at this point. Some of them think I ought to die. I think some people may be wishing for it based on this, certainly spiritually, if not physically. But I called Nelson. I waited till 6 o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't wait any longer. I was so uncomfortable. Had him come over. He gave... He anointed me, and he said something I've never heard him do in a prayer, and something I don't know that I've ever said in a prayer. He says, God, heal him right now. And he finished that prayer, and my heart was beating regular, and I haven't had that sensation ever since. Now, I've thanked God over and over since that night, because he may have preserved my life and kept me alive. Now, if my sins are such that God is no longer going to use me, why didn't he go ahead and let me die? There have been times I thought, well, maybe I'm like Saul. You know, God anointed David and had a replacement already for him, and then David sat there and got spears thrown at him and all kinds of things until Saul finally died in the battle. 
And then David took over. I thought, well, God, maybe if you gave me an office here to do, which I believe he has, uh, maybe, maybe you've said I wasn't diligent enough. Maybe you want me out of here. Okay? There was a perfect chance. He can strike me dead any second. He can get rid of me any way he wants to. But he healed me. And I have no doubt of that in my mind whatsoever, that it was a healing direct from God right now, as Nelson said. I've seen healings before, and that was one. Now, you can throw rocks at me all you want to. And in fact, I think there's a scripture that says, I will be held in utter contempt and have much trouble if I'm fulfilling the office that I think I am. So it just comes with the territory. Sorry. You can make accusations. I'm not going to defend myself. All I can say is I know God healed me, so maybe he's not done with me completely yet. Okay? You can buy that or you can throw it away. That's up to you. But I believe that he preserved me and he healed me because he's not quite done with me and he might want me to finish. So he says, O Lord, you have judged righteously that tries the reins in the heart... Let me see your vengeance on them, for unto them have I revealed my cause. So he says, God, you handle it. All right, what did God say? This is a rebellion in Anatoth. This is the end time Anatoth. We're on the cusp of God bringing his remnant here and blessing them forevermore. Therefore, thus says the eternal of the men of Anatoth, that seek your life, whether spiritually or physically, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal that you die not by our hand. We'll get rid of you. We'll take over the land. We'll take over the church. You people here who are still members of the Congregation of God of Free Church are being repudiated because somebody else now is trying to take our name. Steal it. And steal the land out from under us. They don't look at it that way, but I think God does. Because what does He say? Those that seek to get rid of you and say, You shouldn't be preaching. You're not fit for the ministry. Whatever. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Some have rebelled and left already. Some of them have kids. Some are still here, and the rebellion has gotten bigger. I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. Those are the same terms of Ezekiel 5. The sword, famine, and pestilence. In other words, we are on the very edge of the destruction of this nation, which will soon after be followed by the Great Tribulation, and the people of this nation are going to die, nine-tenths of them, by famine, pestilence, and disease, the sword, and so on. I think what God is saying here of the end-time fulfillment of Anatoth is those who are involved in a rebellion at Anatoth and trying to get rid of the ministry and trying to take over the field, if you will, are going into the tribulation. I hate to say that. I love everybody that's here. Have for years and years. But this is an end time prophecy. And this is what is coming. So if you have rebellious thoughts or you're part of a rebellion to get rid of me, to get rid of Nelson, to get rid of this organization and form your own, whether it be 501c3 or a majority vote or whatever, you are fighting God. And I think I can say that 
as an ordained minister of God who was given a specific commission by God to prepare a place for him. And he will see to it that it is preserved. And you can rebel, but if you do, you're going into the tribulation. So my advice would be, please repent before you face the wrath of God.